you know, my grandmother was an archivist, so I guess I'm following in her, you know, in her steps. But I've got all sorts of stuff since even before Fanny, you know, so and and what's gone on at IMA since the very beginning, which was in the 80s and 90s. What did your grandmother archive? Well, for example, Pete Seeger got all his songs for his first album, Songs of Appalachia. Uh, he got them from her. She she was recording, you know, guys uh, collecting maple from the trees and the songs that they sang. Whatever she was, she collected songs that uh, songs of Lake Champlain. Um, she was from that northeast area, and that was something she did. And he really, really loved and admired her. I interviewed him before, about a year before he died. It's amazing. So she was kind of in that, uh, like Alan Lomax sort of field recording. Yeah, but she didn't go out, you know, and, and drive to different parts of the country. She was very local. So it'd be Burlington, Lake Champlain, upstate New York. Yeah. Has music been in your family the entire time? Um, I can't say that as a, an actual full statement. It's been part of our culture, but I mean, you know, I'm Philippine American, so. The American side of my family is so different side from the Philippine side, which is very musical, very musical. So music runs in my veins in a certain way, and I can feel it. Also, I'm touched with, you know, the spiritual side, and they're the ones who give me a lot of information. They're the ones who asked me to start IMA, actually. When when you say spiritual, are you talking about any kind of practice in particular, or just broadly? Yeah, I'm I'm a Buddhist, and I... The two uh, streams that I learned, one was from the Dalai Lama. So I did the Kala Chakra with him. And when he did the Kala Chakra, that was in Madison, Wisconsin in 81. He said that that particular um, practice, I mean, Kala Chakra is <laughs> pretty intense, but um, he said it was yoga of the imagination, that, that style of Tibetan Buddhism, which really fits in with me because I, I go into places, you know, in my imagination and whatnot. I don't have hearing in my left ear, and therefore I feel like that really opens up a lot of channels to be spoken to, to have, you know, my bidding, uh, for me to hear my bidding. And I do, I do, I really do. So, um, you know, that's different from a lot of people. And also Ruth Dennison was my Vipassana teacher, and she really taught me about a lot about the actual nature of reality, which is so different than what we perceive as, you know, our reality. This is what I see, what I hear. It's actually a bit different from that. I'm going to need an explanation on that. What's what? Uh, what form does it take? Well, uh, you know, I can't really give you. I'm not a qualified practitioner sure. or teacher. Uh, the short version would would be since we have five senses, uh, and we also have a place in our brain, one side. And the other side is about this big, you know, like a cherry or something. So one side's uh, pitch and one side's, uh, let me see, pitch and cadence, essentially. You know, like, well, and if you're going to study Buddha- Buddhism at all, you have to accept that um, the nature of life or the nature of being here is the first point of suffering. So that's a big one to get over. But what she really... Uh, honed in on, on on teaching me, I feel like she really was hard on me because she w- wanted me to get it, is that, um, as I was saying, the left and right brain have uh, uh, pitch and, and um, cadence, 
or mm. how we say words, you know, hey, we don't talk like this. We've got that skip in our voice, right? I think of it as you have all these senses coming in with data, raw data, and you have an app in your brain to put it all together and make up a story every single second. That happens to be the truth. So there is no one truth like everyone sees some one thing happen. You know, that's the problem with witnesses. They they don't all remember the same color of the car, et cetera, and so forth. So that's at a very basic level what the nature of phenomena is. And, you know, she also taught us that you really shouldn't or you can't believe everything that you think are your own thoughts. They're not your own thoughts. If you're sitting in meditation, you can hear other thoughts come in. They're just they're just out there in the universe. So I think a lot of people who are troubled by their thoughts actually don't have their thoughts. They're believing what's coming through. And that's a really fine but uh, huge distinction because once you get that, you don't have to believe everything. You know, even if I get a little bit, bit depressed, I'll think, well, what am I, you know, what's going on? What am I thinking? I don't have to believe it. It saves a lot of trouble. And it's something. <laughs> so that's the basis of my understanding of the nature of reality through the Buddhist teachings, which I think are helpful hints from the universe. <laughs> if I heard you correctly, the nature of life is suffering. Well, that is, that's where you start from the four noble truths. The first one is suffering. And everything from there kind of explains the nature of suffering, why we suffer so much, how we keep going into suffering, in and out of it, and so on. And meditation is a way for you to not uh, be so focused, you know, on that. There's just ways to free. It's about freedom, really. When did you start your meditation practice? Well, I was reading about Buddhism when I was in Fanny. I was trying to read it as much as I could. But I didn't start with any teachers. I mean, I've had a lot of teachers, uh, and not just in Buddhism, but Buddhism is my, you know, basically my way. Um, I guess I started with actual teachers somewhere in the late 80s. And I did the Kalashaka with His Holiness in 1981 in Madison, Wisconsin, and then Later that year, I found out about Ruth Dennison when I was in Hawaii, actually. So uh, I, I went immediately to her, and I was I was there with her at her desert retreat outside, even higher than Joshua Tree, by um, New Year's Eve 1981. So that's when 81 was really big for me in terms of really beginning to receive the teachings from qualified teachers. The teachers, you know, they know all the pitfalls. They'll help you. You know, because when you're, when you're getting into it, you get so confused. Yeah. I finally got to a point where I used to count down the minutes while I was doing it. And I finally got to a point where when, you know, when my buzzer goes off and I'm a little bit disappointed. Count down the minutes? I mean, you know, that's not, that's not the thing. <laughs> well, I, I, just mean, I just mean, yeah, well, that, that's my point. Exactly. I just mean that I, 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 when I first started attempting it, I would get really restless. Were you by yourself? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I really can't um, sort of, uh, you know, impress enough how important it is to be with a teacher because they really break down a lot of stuff for you. Mm. You go to places much more easily. Yeah, it's really hard to meditate because you're listening to your thoughts. But how to not listen to your thoughts and get freed up. And then all of a sudden you realize, oh, my God, I was free for like two seconds, How however long it is. And then it becomes longer. And then... 
you realize, oh, I, I don't have to be tethered to all this and be all like anxious and all that kind of stuff. You know, it's it's subtle, but it's really deep. Yeah. Life yeah. is hard. Yeah, life is suffering. Yeah. <laughs> somebody, no, somebody I said life is me. hard. <laughs> yeah. I, what kind, if any, impact has your spiritual practice had on your music? Oh, I think it's had quite a bit. While I was sort of intuiting the search, when I was in Fanny, I was writing songs like Think About the Children, you know, You've Got a Home, stuff like that, that it was really the seeker voice, you know. Tomorrow is another example, which I'd forgotten I'd even written. So um, I think I've always been a seeker, and I've, I've gone into other, you know, teachers and religions, but clearly the, the uh, Buddhist path, especially the Himalayan uh, path, and there's about five of those, um, and then the Vipassana, which comes more from Burma, clearly that is my way. Seeking, did that coincide? You've discussed this period of your life, you know, when you were, I think, 23, and you were really, really struggling on the road. Is that the time when you started really looking? Well, I mean, I was looking, but I didn't hadn't found any teachers yet. So I was looking on my own, which is its own thing, right? So I was seeking, but also, you know, you're doing shows practically every night, and that takes you into a different realm, you know. That's not particularly a meditation unless you disappear, which I think I did quite a bit, disappear into the all through music, which is a great thing to do. It's wonderful. So there's a sense in which the, the music itself is meditative? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Music is is one of the most exalted ways to get to nothingness, you know, to get to the truth, to get to freedom. It's incredible. This period that I mentioned, you know, to me, just reading about it and obviously not not knowing you, it, it sounds like burnout is probably the word that I would use, that there was a period where the way you described it, you, you were just having, you were having trouble, you know, connecting with people and making lasting friends. Well, yeah, there was burnout, but I would say that the places where... uh we didn't fit together as a band, like all the fights I had with Nikki. She just didn't get me. I didn't get her, et cetera. That was really tough. And then uh, when we weren't selling enough records, like 60,000 units per album was not enough, you know. We could tell that the record company had lost faith in us, and they are trying to get us to wear these skimpier outfits. And I, I really mm. hated that, along with my mental distress. And my love heard left me, et cetera. So everything kind of fell apart for me. I read an interview that, that Nikki did, I think, around the time of the of the movie. I mean, obviously, she wasn't really involved in, in the uh, the reissues with the rest of you. She but... did not do an interview for the movie, trust me. She's, she's okay. incommunicado. So somebody somebody posted an online email interview okay. that they did. Uh, yeah. yeah. It sounded like overall the entire experience was she just didn't enjoy it. Yeah, that's her spin. You know, that's what she says. However, I will tell you that we did have fun at, at times, you know. So she would allow herself to, to be enjoying the moment, but it wasn't, it didn't really last 
for that long. And I don't know if it was really that genuine. It's so hard for me to, to know because I never really knew Nikki. Gene, yep. Allison, and uh, myself, you know, we had been in the svelte. So we had been in those that teenage tumbling around years. We never had that with Nikki. So we didn't have that ease with her. She came in with all these sort of assumptions about girl musicians, and she didn't want to be in a girl band, but she didn't have anything else, you know, in in, uh, in the works, I guess you could say. So it was tough for her, but, you know, that wasn't my problem. Is it possible to connect with somebody musically who you just aren't getting along with on a personal level? Well, I suppose you can for a bit, you know, because music is so incredible and it will free you from the bonds of intolerance or dislike or whatever for bits of time. But um, I don't think as a full program, I don't think it can do that. You're still going to have your differences, you know. It sounds like overall you you really look on that back on that period fondly. Um, but obviously, a lot of things didn't go the way you had hoped or planned. Was it? <laughs> I mean, the society yeah. itself is so against us, you know, yeah. and that with... Uh, you know, the, the, the insults that Nikki would like, you know, sort of say to me, either overtly or covertly, that was all as a package really hard. But, you know, I was in the band with Jean, my sister, and with Alice, and we did great work. So when we were doing great work, we were having fun. Did it take time, though, to um, get that perspective after you left the band to realize, you know, it, it's it's hard to... It's hard to know how good something is when you're actually going through it because, you know, people tend to focus on the bad things. I wasn't really trying to think of how easy or hard it was. I just know I was traumatized uh, by the experience. And I left Fanny without asking for anything, no royalties, no, uh, you know, no money to speak of. I think I got $50 a gig for like six months. I just asked for something, you know. So, um I, and I didn't want to think of Fanny at all. I did not. I refused to. I wouldn't even speak to my mom about it or Toshi Regan is a great artist. She said, you know, you ought to talk about Fanny. I'm like, that is over with, you know, and Alice would ask me to listen to Fanny Jean. I wouldn't do it until we had to listen to all the takes that um, were sent to us with regards to the um, four CD uh, compilation. And then I had to listen and I realized, okay. Yeah, all right. We were good. We were <laughs> good. We were really good. So what am I going to do about that now? You know, I had to start surrendering to that. And I started to have different dreams, which is really great. I, I saw different um, rooms at Fanny Hill, and there were nice people. And it, it was a really cleaned up vibe rather than, you know, kind of this like don't open the door the door to the basement because it's all all those sounds i mean literally i would perceive that in dreams i was really afraid of going there and also i was so young when it all happened so i had no way to really process it so i hadn't yet processed it but after that 40 cd compilation came out in 2002 i sort of had to surrender to it and little by little through everything that's happened you know fanny recording fanny walk the earth and the documentary, I've had to really take a look at it and appreciate it for how, you know, what it was from my point of view. Yeah. So that's several decades you went without ever listening to the music. Exactly right. And there were little things that happened, like 
around 1975, maybe, um, a woman who walked, uh, worked with um, the Fillmore, her name was Amy Taylor, she did an interview uh, with the San Francisco Chronicle or Stone or something like that. And she said, she made this comment that totally closed the door for me. And here is a woman who works with the Fillmore, you know, with Bill Graham. She said, Fanny was a one-trick pony, and I completely closed down. Completely. That was it. The doors closed and locked. I was so upset when I read that. Why did she say that? Well, on what basis? You know, so that's, we got comments like that from both men and women, you know, sort of, I don't know, they were trying to to be the, I guess, the critic. But, you know, you don't always get to be a critic and just not actually consider all the factors involved, you know, that we had had a lot of guys insult us since the time we first started the Svelts and, uh, you know, 65, 66. And we've been sneered at all that time. And we've gotten better despite all that. Nobody gave us credit for that. No one gave us credit for, well, I, not no one, but not enough people gave us credit for persevering and getting better and better. And actually, we got a lot better than the bands who were criticizing us. That's a fact. And they were not happy about it. <laughs> At what point did you become aware that people were starting to have that conversation that Fanny had really opened the door for a lot of other bands? You know, I mean, there were there were a few good uh, comments in the press, but I'd say mostly it was the audiences. I think it was mostly the audiences. And, you know, when I thought back about it, it's mostly the boys who would come up to us and, and say, oh, my God, you know, whatever they would say. And, there would be girls with them, but they didn't say anything. So that's how the picture was at the time. Girls looked up at us and you could see in their eyes, boy, you guys, I wish I was one of you, you know. And we did get some mail. But I think it was the audiences that, you know, we wouldn't have kept going on the road for three years and gotten all those gigs if, if we sucked. Let's put it away. I mean, in terms of, you know, this, there's, there's an appreciation for the band now that perhaps didn't exist before of, of you being pioneers and of you opening the door for a lot of um, musicians that have walked through it since. But it seems like that's a, the sort of, that's the kind of thing that, that develops slowly over time. Yeah, but we knew it. I mean, just listen to the intro to a lot of good love. Just listen to the intro of that. That's not. You know, that's pretty sophisticated, but nobody said, hey, that is a really sophisticated intro. Wow, how did they manage to do that? You know, it's not the same intros on the original song. That's a cover, but still, you know, we would make everything our own. Or we got a lot of good comments about Badge, and I Hmm. was compared to Eric Clapton, and, you know, some critics said that they thought my solo was better. Now, I I never thought that because my solo was based on Eric's, but I, I I did emote something from a girl that was simply that. I mean, you wouldn't get that from a guy. It was the sort of the yearning of, of just wanting to break through of, of getting as much as I could out of life, etc. And you can hear that even just like on the last note of my solo, you know, that's, it's just that cry. Okay. So that was me and back by Fanny who was playing their hearts out. So we weren't fooling around, man. And a lot of times when we were recording, like Lowell George would be there. Uh, He was a really good friend of ours. Um, 
Scott wasn't there so much, even though he was a good friend. But um, Sly, whom we'd done a, a gig <laughs> with, and Fan, uh, not Fanny, in the Svelts, he would come plop down in the studio. Um, he liked us, you know. So there, there were a few people who really were comfortable with us, and they were the guys who were the uh, out there the most. <laughs> Sly and Lowell, you can't get more out there than that, really. Frank Zappa adored us, you know? Well, yeah, really, if, if you were to ask me to name the outlandish musicians of that period, those those two would be on the top of my list. But also, you know, um, certainly David Bowie was pushing a lot of boundaries, and he's, you know, he, he had subsequently said some really great things about the band. Was he, did he seem like he was on board at the time? Well, yeah, apparently he sent us a, kind of a love letter slash a fan letter uh, when he did his first album. He sent it to us and said, oh, I really love you girls. And I don't remember it. Nobody has it you know, now. So, but he really did, was a fan of ours. And um, we met him on the road. We were in, uh, I think it was Liverpool and he was staying in the same hotel. We did a gig at the same time and we got back to the hotel and there was a note at the desk saying David Bowie, would like you to come up to his party in the penthouse. And it's and that is described in the book and was really incredible. We the, the elevator door opened and it was the penthouse and it was full of people. But it was a really nice, quiet, sophisticated party. And I actually ended up spending all night with him and just talking. That was fabulous. He completely accepted us as equals. You know, so that was really great. That was really great. I mean, on the notes of both being in Liverpool and, um, you know, like like the Clapton cover being being compared to other musicians, uh, you know, when it, one of the other big covers that you did was Hey Bulldog by the Beatles. And it sounds to me like you felt like you were getting a lot of pressure from the record label to like be the Beatles. No, no, no. You've got that completely wrong. Why did you think that? I mean, the record company said it never said anything about that. We chose that song. We had a great yeah. running through to Fanny Hill without anybody telling us to. We didn't, we're not thinking of busting the envelope on the Beatles. We were just having a great time playing. That's what we did. That's what we were best at. And so, hey, I don't even think we knew we were going to record with Jeff Emmerich when we started doing that song. I don't have that in my head. Oh, we got to play this really well for Jeff. What happened was that we love that song so much. We made up that first, you know, and then when we got to Apple and Jeff was engineering, I mean, he was, he couldn't have been more surprised and happy that we knew how to play and knew how to record. So those to me are the triumphant moments. You know, we met George and Ringo because their offices were right upstairs and we met Paul and Linda at a, a different session at air because Richard was producing Carly Simon at the same time. You know, he's so vain. You're so vain. And then I met uh, John when my brother Earl Slick, whom, whom Gene eventually married, when he was playing a double fantasy. So I did work with all or see all the Beatles and uh, they were thrilled with us. So I, I, I want to disabuse you of that notion that they wanted us to be like the Beatles what I will say is they want to sell more records and they want us to show more tits and ass when I left. And that I would not do. That I would not do. I mean, there's just 
you know, I have my, uh, I guess you could say my ethics and my morals. I didn't feel like I've never kind of posture like a man or a boy when I play guitar. I don't need to do that. I, I work so hard on playing that I don't need to have my guitar, you know, coming out on my crotch and pretending doing what guys do that way. They've got a dick, you know, so they <laughs> represent it with their guitar. I don't have one and I'm not representing it. I meant to be crass. You know, I never felt the need to do that. Never. So, um, yeah, let me disabuse you of that notion. Everything we did, we either chose or maybe Richard and management might have mentioned a song, but I don't remember any song that they mentioned. I feel like we chose all our material. To clarify, I didn't mean the choice of the song. Uh, I, I meant that, you know, for example, keeping four of you to oh, have the band okay. more than well, that's that's not playing. That's the sort of you know. Yeah, sorry. That's what I. That's what I. Yeah, remember. yeah. The presentation. That's yeah. true. That's true. They wanted us to be like the Beatles and have four of us, and they thought that we had a really good chance to do that. But we didn't stay long enough to really develop our own original material. I mean, the Beatles were doing their own original material from the jump. We did not stay uh, together long enough to really do that. I mean, the Beatles didn't need to stay together. They were doing it from the jump. But you, you hear what I'm saying. There was yeah. just there was so much stuff confronting us that was really unpalatable. Quite frankly, it was almost impossible to get through the thicket of preconceptions about how girls weren't supposed to do it. It was really horrible. That side of it was truly horrible. It's hard for me to explain, but it was uh, unpalatable. I get the sense that something that you had to fight against, certainly in the earliest days, was the idea that uh, by the nature of having an all-female band, that it was effectively a novelty band. Yeah. Yep. They expected us to be topless a lot, you know, on the first tour. They still expected us to be topless. A lot of, you know, even college audiences. Did the tides change? Did opinions change? Did you feel like it by the end that you were getting at least a little more respect? Well, well by 71, we got a lot more respect. I mean, yeah. 71 was the year in which we played both the Fillmore East, Fillmore West. We backed up Barbara Streisand live in the studio on two songs. We played on the Sunny and Cher show. We went to England at the end of the year and were conquering audiences there. We played B-Club and we recorded our album at Apple with Jeff Emmerich. I mean, it really couldn't get any better than that. You were traumatized to to describe that period and, and what you had to work on afterwards. Was it yeah. was it anything in particular or was it just all all of this piled up on top of each other? Anything in particular? I mean, we could point to certain criticisms uh, of our performances or the records that were just horrible. So every single one of them hurt, you know, like a woman said, well, I I hate to say it, but I just, I just don't think women should be on stage playing electric instruments, being a band. I just can't help it, you know, or the guitar player for um, Patty Smith wrote a horrible uh, article on us, I think in Rolling Stone, in which he said we were sort of like, you know, pretenders or we were derivative or whatever. Derivative was, was a, a word that was used on us a lot when I look back at the reviews. I stopped reading the reviews after a while because, I mean, I was just trying to be as good as I could and I was improving, you know, every week because I practiced so hard. And I had such great teachers. I mean, you don't get teachers like Lowell George, Elliot Randall, 
Skunk Baxter. I mean, those are, mm-hmm. I feel like my top three teachers and they were really invested in me. You know, they gave me the goods. So in that sense, the true players who understood what you had to go through, they were on my side and they gave me everything they could. So I knew I was getting better because I could keep up, you know, and but it never was enough for, for society for that terrible, like, it was almost an invisible barrier. Girls, don't enter. In every way that was said to us. When you said skunk before, I was wondering if you were talking about Skunk Baxter. He is, uh, I mean, talk about interesting characters. He's, he's basically a, a, a rocket scientist or, or involved in like missile command at this point. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's, he's always been that way. He's incredible. Yeah, he's, he's one of my best friends. I mean, you know, he can play classical music on guitar. He can, you know, really, he can play anything. And, um, you know, to have a teacher like that is very special because they're going to give you the rarefied stuff. They're going to give you the real stuff. You know, he taught me just little things that I could put in my arsenal that I still use today. And he worked on my guitars. He was my guitar repairman. That's how I met him. It sounds like Todd Rudner didn't have anything to offer in the teaching department. You know, Todd was kind of a mixed bag for me. I mean, clearly he knew what he was doing and we did have some fun. But there was just a certain place that he wouldn't let us girls go past. You know, he, he was clearly superior in his in his mm. mind. So that was it. There was no place to go. There was no real center we could go to and like snuggle and be there and know that we had mutual respect. That that was not. The, it was it felt like a one way street. Yeah, when during the mixing, when he wouldn't let us and in the studio, I didn't want to make any. Comments. I just want to be there. That that was, uh, you know, the ultimate insult. How did you get into teaching yourself? I co-founded the Institute for the Musical Arts, and when the, within the context of that, I didn't plan to be a teacher, but because we couldn't afford to hire teachers, and I, I just I ended up teaching stuff. And one of them is recording. And how I got the information for that, even though I've been recording for years, I got it from my brother, who's in the film. His name, his name is David Scott. He lives in Hawaii, and he's a great sound man slash uh, engineer. So he taught me stuff, and I was able to pass it on. But in terms of teaching guitar, uh, you know, I just had to do it because we, we couldn't afford to hire uh, anyone for the longest time. What was the initial spark behind the school? I heard voices, quite frankly, and they told me. I said, See, that's what I mean. I have an open channel to my ancestors, basically, my ancestors and my angels. And I first heard the voices in 76 in L.A. in in a women's music meeting. And then in uh, 86, I was living with a partner who co-runs the Institute of Musical Arts. She was running the Women's Center at Hampshire College, and I was living with her. And I heard the voices again, but louder, and there were more of them. They were coming in my dreams, so... I was doing a lot of gigs at the time and I was in San Francisco hanging out with Angela Davis. And I told her about these voices and she said, well, get going. This is a true story. And I said, what? You know, not me. I'm not an organizer. And she said the only thing that could have worked. And uh, that was, well, they're talking to you. 
So between Anne and Angela Davis, it really kicked my ass and got me going. And we wrote a sort of a manifesto together. And Angela joined the board along with um, Roma Barron, who uh, produced Laurie Anderson. She did Oh Superman, for example. She, In fact, she's still on our board and teaches at our recording camps. So in a way, I, I tried to hook up with all the best people whom I knew involved in the music biz, you know. And we just took it from there. But I, it was originally literally hearing voices. And, and when I say that, it's like an, an intuition I didn't hear. Didn't really hear them. I did, I did hear some words like, who's going to take care of all the, the younger women, women who are going to be coming down the pike? You know, who's going to take care of them? So that highly concerned me because I knew how hard it had been for us, you know, even as, you know, 15-year-olds starting our first band. You, you need You need help. Yeah, I feel like Angela Davis, you can't say, oh, I can't be a teacher and I can't be an organizer <laughs> to her because, I mean, you know, she's, she she's great. At totally kick-ass and she's so yeah. smart, you know, she's going to hop with you at every turn. So she, like I said, she did it in one line. Well, they're talking to you. I was defeated in my position, you know, of, uh, oh, I can't do this. <laughs> it's like get, getting beat in one move on chess. Right, right. Yeah, she's incredible. Is Anna a musician as well? She plays cello. Oh. So it's a, you know, it's a completely different scene, but she has, she has a, her mom taught violin and she grew up in Illinois. You know, those Midwestern girls, there's a lot of great players out there because the, the music in the schools, the music programs are incredible. So uh, some of the best musicians that I've played with come from the Midwest, seriously. Alice was from the Midwest, for example. <laughs> did, did the two of you meet through music? Let me see. Uh, we had started the Svelte. She had come out west to Secret Fame and Fortune, and she saw a little uh, ad that we'd written up that was in a music store that we were looking for a drummer. So she called. And that was the Svelte. That wasn't even Wild Honey yet, or God forbid, Fanny. So that was a you know bit a bit back. So when I say... And Nikki didn't experience that, teen, you know, sort of the teen years of just kind of tromping around and trying stuff out. And we had a lot of good times, you know. We didn't have that with her. We didn't have that girlfriend thing with her. And that's a whole, you know, the estrogen thing when you're kind of connected that way. It's really yeah. different. It's really different. Yeah. Uh, uh, was it ever hard being in a several bands with your sister and you know, obviously like it's such a, you have such a close connection to that person, but oftentimes siblings are, are the people that you fight with the most. I can't say I really remember fighting with her and, and, and the, the opposites of that is we didn't really talk about it that much. We just knew, we just knew this is something we had to do and we went for it. You know, every time we lost a girl in the band, it was a complete trauma. We lost a, uh, two drummers before we found Alice and they were both great. In fact, one of them was Brie and uh, we lost our original guitar player singer who was so great in the mix. And we got Addie who was in wild honey, who was the band that uh, played at the Troubadour in LA and how we got the deal, the record deal. Um, you know, she's not very much mentioned, but she was a kick-ass guitar player. She still plays, but you know, so all the, all the, uh, girls or young women that we had in our band that we managed to find were really great. I, I don't know how we managed to do it, but that's what happened. So Jean and I, 
were all always united. I think we didn't fight because there was so much pressure against it that we were just consolidated and united in our desire for uh, doing it. And so when I left Fanny in 73, it was tremendously difficult. But I was, uh, I was eaten up. I was, I was just too tired. You know, I didn't know how to handle, handle anything. And like I said, my lover had left me. So I was, I was pretty broken and like a shell of a person inside. But that was great for learning. Did you ever consider leaving music altogether? Well, I've kind of toyed with the idea a couple of times, but I don't really know anything else. And and music is really seriously the thing that, A, I know, and B, that fills me the way that nothing else does. So it's it's it really is fulfilling. Music is incredible. So it's healing also. So not only did it, it express itself through me and, and teach me things, but it, it really healed me and is still healing me in so many ways. So it, it was clear to you after leaving the band that you were going to find your way back into the music world some way or another. Well, I mean, nothing was clear to me. I just was blindly yeah. going towards something. I knew that I, you know, I wasn't really crazy about playing rock. And we went a little bit into rock country because Nikki liked that. Well, you know, I felt more like I was a kind of a Motown soul. Soul was what I was really interested in. Okay. So, but then I got to the New York area. I lived in Long Island for uh, six months to a year. Um, I'd go into New York to, to jam and, um, Jaco Marcelino, the drummer of, uh, so he had a coterie of friends. I would go jam with them. I met Leo Adamian and I slowly but surely my, my view of music shifted and I started to learn about salsa. I started to learn reggae. I started to sort of open my, my, uh, mind and my technique to other techniques because New York is different from LA. So it would feed me in that way. And I learned as much as I could. I mean, as fast as I could. And also I continued to work or jam with Elliot Randall. You know, he played the the solo on Reeling in the Years, but we were friends from having done a gig at the Whiskey. That's how I met him. And of course, I also knew Skunk. So, you know, and Skunk invited him to play that solo in Reeling in the Years. So there was a big connection there. You're talking about Steely Dan and there, the two of them are notorious for being you know like perfectionists when it comes to music you know you were somewhat in that world were they aware of the bands and did they like the band yeah yeah absolutely yeah it's funny because skunk and i would talk when we were on the road and i remember once i was in new york and he called me and just wanted to chat and he told me he was leaving steely dan i said what you know because i mean steely dan was so you know, they were so successful and he'd already done Ricky Don't Lose That Number, which I think has one of the best solos ever of all time. And um I said, why? And he just kind of felt like, you know, they were just too intent on getting too stoner, too uptight and, you know, whatever. So and he said he was joining Steely Dan and I was aghast. You know, I didn't think that. I mean, excuse me, um the Doobie Brothers. Doobie Brothers, yeah. Yeah, and I... I mean, yeah, they had that one hit and, you know, taking it to the street. I didn't, I didn't hear like the stuff, but I realized he had Michael McDonald waiting in the wings, you know, et cetera. So, yeah. um, and I mean, how great was that, you know, but he told me that he, 
took them into the studio for about a month and they practiced on click. So they, they would all know how to record the way that he knew they should be recorded. Interesting. Yeah. The band was Sean and awe. Thank you. And I was really good. They were all really good friends with them. They were a great band and they had so much fun. We would do gigs together. We would just laugh and hang out, you know, you know, that band that did, um, what was that song? They were a native American band. Oh, Redbone. Redbone. What was their hit? Yeah. Um, Mustache. Let me get you love. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Come on and get your love. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, I didn't know the song, but he came rushing backstage. He said, "June, June, we just cut a hit." He was so happy, and I totally believed him. You know, and they had cut a hit. So they were great guys. You know, the brown and the black guys were the nicest to us, but everyone I okay. mentioned. Um, you know, so far, they, they were all white guys. So, you know, the basic line is the better they are, the nicer they were, quite frankly. You no know? competition. I guess so, because they loved us. We loved them. I mean, even when we met the Beatles, uh, you know, a couple at a time or whatever, you could tell they were just so relieved and their women were relieved because they knew we weren't after their men. You know, there was just some, a certain understanding of what it took to do the work, you know, and that was just a real knowing, uh, really shared information. I think a lot of men definitely at the time, and it still stands now, just didn't, they were dismissive, dismissive of you because they didn't want to think that women were better musicians than they were. And in a lot of cases, you very clearly were. You're absolutely right. And I've had guys admit that to me now. I was like, what an idiot I was, you know. Yeah. I just yeah. put you down because I was jealous. <laughs> that period um, after you left the band and they, your sister and the rest of them put out an, an album. I know there was there was talk about you rejoining for that tour. I did rejoin for the. You Butter did rejoin Boy. for that tour. Yeah, the Butterboy tour. We rehearsed there. We tried to get a record deal with that band, but I didn't want to call it Fanny. And at the last second, the record, the guys from the record company said, well, you know, we want you to call yourself Fanny. I said, no. I mean, I, you know, those voices, they, they have just decreed I cannot be in a band called Fanny. That's why Fanny walked the earth. That came from a conversation. Fine. Fanny walked the earth. That's good. You know. <laughs> Did the voices tell you to reunite? Later, when the, uh, no, the issues no, they, they, it wasn't like that. It's just that Jean was at my house when she got the call. I, she was with me in Woodstock during this really big snowstorm. She got this phone call and, and it was management. They said, Hey, she had just told me that Fanny had finally split up forever, but she got this call and management said, Hey, you got a hit. You got to come back so we can make some money. And then she called me about a week later and she asked me if I played guitar on that tour. And that's how it all came back together. But Interestingly enough, that's what led me to women's music and Chris Williamson, because I was in L.A. rehearsing for that, what I call Fanny Point One tour. And Chris was recording Changing the Change. I don't know if you're familiar with that album, but it's great. And she asked me to play on a couple of cuts. And then after Fanny did that tour and we didn't get the record deal. In the meantime, I had played on a couple of cuts and then she asked me to go on the road with her and because the record deal didn't come through. I went out with her and that was incredible. It was so paradigm shifting. I mean, women's music mixed in with the music of the day, which was changing, was molting into, you know, disco, especially with so much coke around. My God, <laughs> really? 
uh, and we ended up, Gene and I ended up in New York, actually, after I did the women's music bit for about a year. We ended up doing Ladies on the Stage in New York with Tom Sellers, like, and I co-produced it together, and that's a great album. But we try to be as kind of on the mark with disco and that kind of thing. Um, but then uh, EMI bought the record company, bought UA, and we were cast out into the wilderness. <laughs> so that was terrible. What was the experience like playing together with them, you know, decades later when there was, I think it was in, I think it was at, uh, in San Francisco, you did a show. The tour we did for the, you know, the release of the, uh, um, the documentary, Fanny, the right to rock on PBS. So Fanny did a like four, four city gig tour in California in May. So that was two drummers, two bass players, Gene was singing from a wheelchair. Yeah. You know, Patty and I played, so that was big. Um, so there's been there's been different um well what would be the word, you know, different composites. Iterations, yeah. Yeah, iterations. So I I feel like, you know, you do the best at each one. I thought it was important to do this tour. I mean, I had to think about it. I mean, am I gonna go on this? This is Gene is on a wheelchair and blah, blah, blah. But I think it was successful because we got out there. And I'm 75. Dude, I mean, there I was playing Fanny material at 75. Fanny is not easy to play. I'll tell you that right now. It is not easy to play. You, I mean, even me, I was huffing and puffing to keep up with those parts. Yeah. You know, we ended up doing Ain't That Peculiar, which I had not played since Fanny. But I had the same guitar. (laughs) 